Welcome to the 10x Managers Podcast, where we interview different managers and leaders each week to share their experiences, learnings and insights so that you can challenge and support your own professional development. If you're not already a member of the 10x Managers community, go to 10xmanagers.com and sign up. There you will be able to access all our archived content, including video interviews, written learning summaries and resources that help you action and implement all the ideas shared in our interviews. You can also join the community discussion and collaborate with other 10x managers. I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks for joining us today. Do you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Hey, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to, to take part in this. So Kabir Seth, I'm currently a sales leader at a tech corporate, been in leadership for, gosh, almost nine years now. Yeah, I've been quite the journey over the last decade of my career. And uh, yeah, looking forward to sharing some insights with you today. Great stuff. Well, it's great to have you, Kabir. So let's jump straight into this. Then. So what do you see is the role of a manager? I think so. Great question. And a bit difficult to answer because I believe it's evolved quite significantly in the past two years. Um, I think historically, managers were viewed as firefighters, go-to people when things weren't necessarily going your way. And I think over the years, especially in the last two years, where our personal lives and professional lives have blended pretty aggressively, I think the role of a leader has evolved to more of a mentor, more of a um, almost like borderline counselor where you're now not only firefighting business-wise, but you're also having to pick up some pieces when people face personal adversity. And I, I believe the role of a leader is quite pivotal when, mm-hmm. when your people are facing personal challenges. No, that's really interesting. And uh, have you seen that similar sort of shift, I assume, as you've moved from manager of individual contributors through to managers of managers? And obviously, you've gone that progression as well. What sort of changes have you seen there? Yeah, so I, I think the traditional hierarchical way of business, I believe that's starting to flatten out a lot more where historically as let's say a VP of sales, you would um, respect um, kind of boundaries as it relates to individual contributors. I think now the lines are a bit more blurry where I as a sales leader feel more accountable to individual contributors as much as to my sales managers. So I feel I have a duty of care, not only to my sales managers, but very much so to individual contributors, because I I think in an environment where we're not physically together, we're not able to informally interact with people. I think it's, as I said, we have a duty of care as sales leaders to, to, to make go the extra mile and make our people feel part of something bigger. No, I know that's something that a lot of people have struggled with as well over the last two two years with with the kind of environment that we're working in, particularly the higher up you get in an organization. It's still having that contact with the people on the ground, the people doing the work, those individual contributors. So what have you done to really enable and ensure that you're still having that interaction with with people on the ground? I think it's one, actually being conscious about it. I think something I took for granted early days into the in, in, into the pandemic and working from home was almost almost operating as though I was in the office, but virtually. And as a result of that, we started to see some attrition spike up. And I, I just made more of a conscious effort to, one, make myself present, very visibly present to my team and my region, 
I think secondly, having more frequent interactions as a group. So having mm-hmm. more face time with, with one to many. And I, I actually made, made the effort to schedule more frequent one-on-ones with, with the region. So, okay. so those were the top three things. Yeah. Things like skip level where you go out there into onto the virtual sales floor and collect feedback from how people are feeling. And I think what's important to highlight here is removing the results from the equation and speaking to them as just as human being a business or no business, human beings were all impacted in, in, mm-hmm. in pretty much the same way with the way things evolved. And I, I think it was very, it's very important to, to take that human first approach these days. No, no, I, th- I think it's uh, interesting. And thank you for sharing that as well. And uh, I'm sure we've got a little insight into that in terms of how you think about management and leadership. And I'm sure some of those kind of principles will come back up now in the next kind of 20 minutes or so as we speak. Uh, but let's pivot the conversation slightly into um, uh, some detail then. So let's talk about Kabir's superpowers. What, what do you see yourself as being great at as a leader? Oh, it's a, this is, it's a difficult question for me to answer because you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm very modest or humble here, but yeah, I, I'm someone who's pretty hard on myself. So for me to identify strengths is often a challenge, but I'm equally a firm believer of this concept of reflective competence in sales leadership, which requires you to consistently identify what are you good at and what are you not so good at. And I think, and thirdly, identify people around you that are the best of the things that you're not so good at. So I think applying that lens for a second, um, I'd say one of my one of my strengths is communication in, in a business context, of course. I'm a firm believer that effective communication is the route to making a change in an organization and with people. I think secondly, emotional intelligence. I, I believe I've got a good uh, grip of being able to read people, albeit through a screen in today's time. But, but yeah, c- certainly those two are the, the top. Okay, no, that's great. Let's dig into communication to start with. Is obviously, it, it's it's your key tool as a manager and leader to be able to communicate and actually make change, as you said. So talk to us a little bit, a bit more about how you see communication. Obviously, there's many different types. You've got written, you've got sp- uh, spoken, you've got now we've got virtual over phone calls and all those sorts of things. How do you really consider communication? How do you think about using it in different situations? Yeah, I think communication is the most, the single most powerful tool that you have as a sales leader in your toolbox. Um, and again, it's something that's evolved pretty aggressively over the last two years where you could get up on stage previously and put on a great show for people and make them feel very special and inspired and really fired up after after delivering, let's say, a recognition meeting. Now you've got to try and replicate that sensation through a video call. Mm. And it's not that easy. You can be the greatest communicator in the world, but you, you still lose people when you're keeping them on to a call for 30, 45 minutes at a time. So I think now... Um, communication needs to be a lot more about facilitation. And what I mean by facilitation is involving and including the audience into your message. So that's something I've become very conscious of is not delivering monologues for 30, 45 minutes. Of course, there is a certain element of that when you've got to communicate important messages or just recognize certain people, it does become a monologue. But I think certainly over the last couple of years, I've changed my communication from being one directional to being very inclusive. Yeah. No, that's really, it's really interesting. So I'm just going to ask you to, to dig into that a little bit more as well. So what does that actually like in practice? What sort of messages can you convey through uh, facilitation? It's When I say f- facilitation, it's about asking questions after providing statements. So mm-hmm. let's say you want you want to influence 
certain changes around particular KPIs in your business life, but rather than just communicating it off the bat, it's about including people in, into your thinking. So sharing some data around what the current state of play is and what, what would your vision be to move the needle on it, and then getting their thoughts and their feedback on how collectively as a team we can do that. So that's what I mean by facilitation. It's about asking questions and ensuring that people are buying into you as you go. This is difficult to see and feel how people are reacting to what you're saying when you're on a Zoom call. Mm. No, absolutely. So just so I, I fully understand it. So it's so you're presenting the data, presenting kind of the inputs and the things that you want to talk about, and then coming to solutions and kind of ways of working together with, with, with the people you're working with. So they, they feel part of it, feel ownership, and essentially then buy into those sorts of practices. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And I think, I think there's something to be said about showcasing vulnerability here as well, because, you know, there's a, a lot of the times there are messages that you know, people don't necessarily agree with and you yourself as a sales leader sometimes don't agree with. And mm -hmm. I think it's, it's about sometimes showing vulnerability on those mm -hmm. areas. So people don't feel afraid of mm -hmm. sharing their own real thoughts on that particular topic. No, that's great. Uh, I was having this conversation actually a couple of weeks ago with uh, a, another manager and we were talking about trying to leave employees with different emotions or different values through communication. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they were talking about how they wanted to, at the end of each communication, they wanted to ensure that employee left feeling confident or left feeling motivated or some sort of value. Do you ever think about that way and do you ever prepare your communication in a way that kind of leaves employees with particular emotions or particular states at the end i think it's a great question i personally feel it's a little bit difficult to convey emotion and connect emotionally with somebody through through a screen i believe it's you know practically impossible to do that only because emotion and and unquantifiable feelings like that can only be done in person i believe you've got to be able to look people in the eye you've got to be able mm -hmm. to, to feel and sense their aura and based on that create some form of a connection I think doing it over, over a video call is very difficult. So I don't necessarily take that lens when I communicate. Yeah. I think there's something more powerful around leading with authenticity, which is calling a spade, right? So we're all working virtually in this environment. And of course, I'm not going to be able to have that same impact that I would if we were in person virtually. Mm -hmm. and, and calling that out, as I said earlier, sharing your vulnerabilities around certain things such as such as this, I think that would have a greater possibility of building or leaving people with a certain emotion. It's interesting. And it links quite nicely, actually, onto what you mentioned with your second superpower as well, it's emotional intelligence. So talk to me a little bit about that. Why is that an important skill as a manager and leader? Because ultimately people buy into people. As a sales leader, you need to be able to have a very strong grip on how your people are feeling at any given moment, night or day, performing or not performing. And quite often as a leader, you need to be two steps ahead of people from, a, from an emotional state standpoint. So you mm -hmm. need to know before even they know that they're feeling down. If based on certain behaviors that you observe, based on the way they interact with you or there being a change in that way of interaction. To give you an example, if somebody who's typically pretty vocal or pretty forthcoming with their interactions with you and suddenly they, you, you see a dip in that, alarm bells should start ringing mm. in your head. Or if you see a certain shift in mindset when, when you're discussing a certain topic and the way their outlook on the future as it relates to that 
changes. Interactions within a team environment, somebody who's typically very uh, vocal and very dominant in team meetings suddenly takes a back seat. That should be another alarm bell. So these little key, there's always cues for picking up on it. And I think some in sales leadership, you need to have a very strong degree of emotional intelligence to, to be able to one, identify and two, act upon your observations. And that was going to be my next question then. So when you observe those changes, when you see those small cues that are telling you something's changing or something's shifting, how do you go about and act on that? Early intervention, I think you don't wait. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of preparation that should go into it. And it's a little bit difficult to answer in a, in a vague context, but let's say your observations are behavior-based. The, the first and foremost thing you want to do as a sales leader is convert those observations into facts. So to, you know, what I typically have done in the past is open up a, a Word document or kept a, a journal of observations that, that I witness and just keep a tab on them for course of a day or two days. Then I schedule a meeting and, and go ahead and address them. But I think in this, it, it's interesting because emotional intelligence helps you capture the data, but then when it comes to delivering the message, you need to be very unemotional and very factual yeah. when you communicate something. So yeah, that, that's my take on it is early intervention is key, but be very fact-based as opposed to emotional. No, I really like that. So the emotional side enables you to detect problems and detect things and almost triage where, where the issues are. And that's then it. in the communication and actually speaking to them, it's about being factual, logical, sharing the data, sharing exactly what's happened. No, I like that. So again, we'll, we'll talk in a fairly general sense rather than any kind of specific examples here. But have you ever come up against when you've had some of these sorts of conversations and you've delivered it very factually, you've shared the facts, you've shared that there were particular behaviours that you were noticing a change in that weren't necessarily in a positive direction. How do you deal with those sorts of conversations if that employee isn't necessarily receptive to them? Great question. So something I've lived my leadership career by, a principle I've lived it by, is understand before being understood, seek to understand before earning the right to be understood by the other person. And I, I, I say this because I believe in leadership, it's so important to create an environment of trust when you're speaking to somebody about something sensitive, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've just addressed a piece of critical feedback. So you're being critical towards the recipient sat in front of you. And in that moment, I think it's very important to allow that person to, to trust you. And mm -hmm. I think the only way you can enable trust in that moment is by understanding the other person's perspective. Mm -hmm. So asking questions and digging into why those behaviors occur. I think mm -hmm. typically somebody that you've hired is for a reason, right? You hire them because you see something that gives you confidence in their ability to be successful. Certain behaviors, you have an insight into how they think as a person and as a professional, which gives you a lot of confidence as a sales leader that this individual is going to do great things for under your leadership. So clearly when you have to address a conflictive behavior to what you've observed in the past, something has changed. And usually those observations are a symptom of an underlying mm. problem. And I think what a lot of sales leaders fall into the trap of doing is address symptoms as opposed to go into the root cause of the issue. Mm. So what I mean by understand before on being understood is take the time in that moment to understand the root cause of why this individual is, has suddenly changed in behavior. What is the true reason for it? Is it an external factor or is it an internal factor? And this is what I mean by emotional intelligence is you, you need to be 
ahead of the game when it comes to truly understanding what are the un- underlying reasons for, for, for somebody acting out in a certain way? Does no, that no, make that, sense? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely does. I just wanted to, again, pull back on one thing that you mentioned there about uh, when you've been hiring in the past and you've um, brought somebody in that you believe is going to be great for the business. What sort of things are you looking for through uh, an interview process and a hiring process that's, going to, that's a signal to you that this is going to be a high performance employee? So uh, I think I'm, I'm quite fortunate to work in a business where we hire based on traits as opposed to track record and results. And the traits per definition are intrinsic. They're, mm-hmm. they're not in, in some of the traits. Yes, they can be coached. But for most of the part, there's something the, there, there are things that are deep within you as a human being. So mm-hmm. for, for instance, a sense of purpose, right? Why does somebody get out of bed? What drives you? What compels you to, to pull through when times get tough? So where does the mm-hmm. resilience come from? So I think that whole sense of purpose piece is very important to identify in, in an interview process because any business or any in sales in general, there are going to be some very dark times that you have to pull through and you can have the greatest sales leader in the world that's going to teach you all the playbooks in the world, but you're not going to come out of that trough until, unless it comes from within you. So mm-hmm. I'd say that's the, the, the biggest thing I look for is somebody's connection with their sense of purpose. I think another thing that's important to me is coachability. In, in sales in general, you're typically competing with yourself, but a lot of the times you're entering, let's say you're joining a new business, there are guaranteed to be people in that business that are better than you at that particular point in time. Mm-hmm. And if you're somebody who's hungry for feedback and hungry for coaching, you're going to go out and make it your objective to connect with all the top performers and understand what, what makes them successful and what are the, the playbooks that they're following to get to that level of success. So I think coachability is big, right? And something quite easy to identify in, a, in an interview process because you give somebody feedback in the interview, you see what they do with it. So I'd say those are probably the top two things I look for. Nice. Okay. That's great to know. And thank you for sharing that. Let's uh, pivot the conversation slightly and let's look at some of the things that you found harder throughout your career. So obviously over the last nine years, could you maybe identify one or two of the biggest challenges that you faced on that journey? Sure. I'd say the first, the, the biggest one has been actually the, the year I stepped into leadership. I'll tell you why it was difficult. I think I hadn't had the the time or the maturity to reflect on the reasons why I stepped into leadership when I did. Mm-hmm. I was fairly young and inexperienced when I joined the business I'm in now. I had a really fast, successful career as an individual contributor. And in my head, my just overall naivety about corporate life led me to believe that the only way to progress at an organization is to climb up the corporate ladder. So naturally, mm-hmm. For me, leadership was was the next move, which was going to help me earn a certain title, get a bigger compensation, and be the manager of people. So I think that was probably the big, the most difficult transition for me because I hadn't reflected on the the, the reasons why I wanted to mm. step into leadership, other than satisfying my ego. And as a result of that, I, I, I became the type of manager that you know you wouldn't want to work for, which is somebody who only cares about the numbers, only cares about satisfying his or her own KPIs and metrics as opposed to a collective sense of vision and purpose Mm. for the team. I was very selfish in my outlook in my first kind of six months as a, as a new manager, where it was all about me, all about my results, my, my 
president's club or my hitting my quota as the manager, as opposed to being the coach and the uh, the mentor and the idol um, that that I should have been at the time. I think that was the first thing. The second thing was just impatience. I was still in individual contributor mode in my head. Mm. So I, w- I wanted to see results quickly. When, when I was saying to a particular associate, it was like, hey, this week we're going to do X. I was expecting very steady and quick progress against those things in the first couple of days of that week, as I would have done myself mm. when I was an individual contributor. And I think going through this experience was invaluable to me because I, I was very fortunate to have a team that was not afraid of sharing critical feedback mm-hmm. with me. And I was fortunate to take over a team of individuals that I'd worked with for the past two years. And I was quite friendly with, in fact, they were very candid with me in, in their feedback. So I think I, I, I can only thank them for that very invaluable lesson early days in my career because I've carried those things through with me in my leadership career. So I think in summer, leadership is not about you. Nobody cares about what you care about as a sales leader, right? Honestly, as an individual contributor, you couldn't care less about what your manager or VP cares about. You care only about your own earnings and you care about your own earning the recognition you deserve for the the work you do. And I think it's very important in leadership to connect with what's important to your people as opposed Mm -hmm. to be connected with what's important to you. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the first thing. And then, of course, just being an authentic version of yourself. That's the second big lesson I learned. Don't try to be, there's a lot of times I come across people in leadership that try to be a second rated version of one of their sales leaders from the past. And you know, as a, as a consequence of that, you're only a second rated version of yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You need to be a top rated individual because a top rated leader, because you're a top rated version of yourself, if that makes sense. So I think authenticity is, is super critical. So those are probably the top two lessons I've picked up over the years. But both really interesting. I'm going to focus on the first one first, because I think that was a really interesting story. And I think a lot of people would resonate with that, having heard it, maybe even not having thought about it themselves in the past. Because I know I just did, as you were talking about it then, because I think I was in a very similar position to, to what you just said, but didn't even realise that I wasn't even speaking about that. So. I've got a load of questions about there. First one would be, you're now obviously in a position where you're helping individual contributors take that step into leadership and take that step into management. Uh, and I assume this is something you speak to them about. What would you say are good reasons to want to go into management now? What are the things that make a good manager? I think, look, I think people need to go on a journey um, of self-discovery, which unfortunately we don't really have the time for and enough time for because I'm I'm lucky to work for an organization that's very fast growing and we're hiring we're having to hire people before they're ready quote unquote so naturally you're gonna be in a position where we're promoting people before they're ready I think given the opportunity to dictate when people step into leadership I think if we were living in a world where people could say all right I have a timeline of two three years step into leadership. I think in those three years, you need to go on a journey of self-discovery where on the one hand, you are very deeply connected with your personal drive, but you're able to pivot and simultaneously connect with what motivates other people Mm. with empathy, with passion, and with conviction. And I think it's very important to, to do this authentically because with 
any in, in leadership, but when you're dealing with six, seven people, those six or seven people have a degree of emotional intelligence, which mm-hmm. you need to be successful in sales. If you're not an authentic leader, it's going to be very evident to the people that you're leading, that you're faking, that you're somebody mm-hmm. who's not authentic. And therefore you breach trust, you lose followers, and you're just unable to create vision and, and culture. So I think self-reflection is super important because I don't think you can just pivot overnight from being very connected to your personal drive and your personal motivations to suddenly being connected to six or seven other people. I think it's a process of evolution. It's an evolutionary process that takes sometimes years where you need to spend time with other people as an individual contribute, be selfless and feel good about it. Mm. I think a lot of the times people do mentorships and deal coaching with others as a tick box exercise to earn the stripes you need to get the next role. Mm. I think very few actually take the time and, and do those things because, because it's good karma for yeah, them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I yeah. think it's when you're able to selflessly devote time to others and, and actually feel and take a lot of pride, genuine pride in the, the, the betterment of others around you, starting with your team, I think you're on, on, on a good track for leadership because mm. okay. leadership really, is never about you. It's yeah. it, it can never be about you. Yeah. So how do you balance? Cause I'm sure you still have personal ambitions and personal drive. How do you ensure that you're a selfless leader? It's all about the people while still having an eye on where you're trying to get to in the future as well. Great question. So for me, I've, come to the realization over nine years that my personal objectives are only as relevant as my people's personal objectives. Mm -hmm. Let Mm -hmm. me say that again. My personal objectives are only as relevant as my people's personal objectives. And the reason for that is because if my people are unsuccessful, my personal objectives don't really even exist. If they're not, if they're not producing results or they're not getting better at their jobs, there's no way in hell I'm going to achieve what I want to personally achieve. So that's why I've, I've, I've flipped it on its head over the last nine years is rather than setting a personal objective for myself at the start of a year as a typical individual contributor would do, I start with my people's personal objectives. Mm. So at the start of every year, I typically spend the first six to eight weeks of every new quarter connecting one-on-one with, with my people understanding what their personal professional objectives are, both from a results standpoint, but also from a career perspective, and then give my two cents where necessary on how we can, as a business, help them get there. And only once I have a good grip of what is the state of my environment, can I create a personal objective. So that's my take on it. No, really interesting. It's just flipped it completely. It's your people first, what can they achieve? And then what will that enable you to achieve based on you helping them achieve that? That's great. I like that. Yeah, because you imposing something that's very personal to you and I don't know, the 24 people that work for you don't care about whatsoever. That's not the way to go. Yeah, no, completely. Absolutely. No, that's really cool. I like that. So thank you for that. You also mentioned authenticity as another thing that you found challenging and and kind of you've learned as you've gone through there. Tell us that story a little bit then. So how did that manifest? I think authenticity, it's something 
that's come to the forefront and come to the limelight more so in the last two years. I think historically, leadership has always been taught as, as this role where you've got to be the, the strongest in the force. You've got to be the one protecting everybody. You've got to be the, you've got to be this picture perfect image of, of success, right? So mm -hmm. people can look at you and go, wow, I want to be like that. I, I, I think as a consequence of that image, um, you know, sales leaders have become very inauthentic to themselves, have become very, you know, have almost tried to be something they're not. Mm -hmm. And in the last two years, with the amount of personal pain, for the lack of a better word, that people have been through, I, I think being vulnerable with what you're going through is so important. And that's mm -hmm. what I mean by leading with authenticity. It's not being afraid as a sales leader to, to say, hey, I'm, I'm going through a difficult time myself, or, hey, I don't actually have the answer here. Because that's another thing. Remove COVID from the equation for a second. If all things were normal, instinctively as a sales leader, you, you want to have all the answers, right? Your mm -hmm. people come to you with, with, with problems and you want to give them the answer. And a lot of the times you don't have the answer. And sometimes mm -hmm. you, you have a tendency to misguide people because you're trying to satisfy your ego that, mm -hmm. that you're the sales leader and you have to have the answer, that you misguide people and sometimes it just doesn't work and you lose credibility in, in the process. Whereas I think leading with authenticity, yeah, just be vulnerable and say, hey, I don't have all the answers. I don't know the answer to this question, mm -hmm. but I'm sure as hell going to make it my job to help you find the person that can answer this question for you or help you through this problem. Typically, what you find also is the best salespeople don't make the best sales leaders. So when you mm -hmm. come to a sales leader, a very tactical sales-related problem that perhaps you're not best equipped as a sales leader to deal with, you may end up losing a lot of credibility in that process when you role play or give people the wrong advice on a particular in that moment. But you need to be very self-aware Again, coming back to reflective competence, always be aware of what you're good at, what you're not good at, and who are the people that are the best of the things you're not good at so that you can guide your people to the best at that particular conundrum. That's great. And there's two questions I want to come to. Just before that, we've mentioned reflective competence twice now. Um, aware that maybe not everyone will be fully understanding what that is. Do you mind explaining what that actually means and how you use it? Yeah, reflective competence, it's a framework. It's a framework of thought. And it's got three components to it. One is always, always be reflecting on what are you good at? What are the three or four things that you are very competent and good at as, as an individual contributor or as a leader? What are the three or four things that you're not so good at? But the third component is identifying people around you internally or externally that are the best of the things that you are not good at or you mm -hmm. are not great at. That is reflective competence. I guess it's pretty similar to conscious competence, unconscious competence, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah no, Just, no, makes a lot of sense. So then obviously when you've then identified the people that are good at those things, you're not necessarily as great at, how do you then leverage that with your, with your team? So it's uh, around creating a win team for those individuals with the people that are not the best of the things that you're good at. So for instance, you may not have been the best sales manager when it comes to, I don't know, reviewing deals. Let's just mm -hmm. use a very vague example. You're not the best at reviewing deals. So I think in that moment, rather than having your pride dominate and try to showcase and continue doing poor deal review sessions with your team, why not engage with 
somebody who is known for doing the best deal review sessions in, in your channel or outside of your place of work even, and understanding, okay, what does this individual do that makes him so great? Or in some cases, even sending your people to that individual to go through some scrutiny on their deals or inviting them to a team meeting and having a second pair of eyes on it. So it's about having the humility to do that. I think that's what earns, I, that's my view. That's what earns authenticity. So it makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's becoming confident in what you're good at and also in what you're not as good at and helping your team to fill in those gaps where you can't serve them as well as you need to. And exactly. And able to be authentic in the bits you are good at as well. So uh, no, I like that a lot. There. Okay, so final question then. So it's a question we ask everyone. It's a very open question, but it's about talk, talk to us about a time or a decision or an event that's happened throughout your career that's had the biggest impact. And again, that impact could be on yourself, it could be on your team, or it could be on an individual, but just one event that's had the biggest impact that stands out to you. Ah, you know, it's never been asked that before, nor have I ever thought about it. I, I don't think I can narrow it down to one particular event from a professional development standpoint, but I can certainly talk about my, my personal journey. It was back in 2016. I was maybe year three into the role of, of leadership and I went through a divorce and that was probably... Uh, yeah, that was probably the most defining moment I've had in my life to mm -hmm. date, because not only from a personal perspective was I going through adversity, but I was also having a really difficult year professionally. Mm -hmm. It was the first year that I missed quota and missed plan by, by a landslide. It was a year where you know, I suddenly went from a team of seven to a team of three in the space of a quarter. And you talk about uncontrollables, and it was the one moment in life where Every uncontrollable I can think of came colliding with one another. Mm. And, and I was lost. I was probably what? I was 30, 30 years old at the time. About, not, not even 30. I was about to hit 30, mm. which is in itself a you know, milestone for a lot of people. And I was just sitting there on the eve of my 30th birthday thinking, what a mess my life is in right now. My, my job is in jeopardy. My personal life is out the window. What am I doing? And I think how I bounce back from that is something I, I rely on and take a lot of strength from to this day. Because in that moment, I couldn't see the light and I couldn't find a way out of it. And probably to this day, that would I would define that part as uh, of my life as my dark darkest moment. And I draw a lot of strength from it because it, it shows me that you can get over any any piece of adversity time that saying of time heals everything that's mm -hmm. true it does i'm now happily with with the love of my life I've, I've just recently had a boy i'm doing really well with my career i'm in a new country so looking back at that period had i known that this was how life was going to turn up uh turn out i wouldn't have been so hard on myself you know i think it's important to to recognize that sometimes when you're going through adversity you're almost too hard on yourself and I'm going to leave you with, with this quote that, that I picked up when I went to counseling, because so, I went to counseling for a little bit, that, that says it's okay to not be okay. And yeah, I've carried that with me. Thank you for listening to the 10X Managers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can keep up to date for when we interview different managers and leaders every week. Remember, if you're not already a member of the 10X Managers community, go to 10xmanagers.com and sign up. There you can join the community discussion 
access all our archived content and resources that ultimately help you to take action and make change.